Uh, in this case, the Miami Herald wrote, there was an article, it's the headline said, Channel 10 hires black anchor on their sports page. And so Steve Washerman called me up and he said, um, hey, I just want you to know the newspaper wrote something uh, that uh, we never talked about. And I just want to let you know that they're reporting that uh, that you're black. <laughs> and I said, oh, they are, are they? He said, we never brought that up, did we? I said, no, we didn't. Welcome to the Love Journalism Show. I'm your host, Darren Samuelson. My guest today is Cambrell Marshall, a local television journalist with a groundbreaking and amazing 47-year career that includes long stints in South Florida, and most recently, these last two-plus decades in Houston, the number eight media market in the country, and the second largest in Texas. He's known for his volunteerism, his warm on-air presence, and a trademark bow tie as the meteorologist for the NBC affiliate there, KPRC. He's also someone I wanted to be when I grew up. Cambrell started working in my hometown in 1985 on the ABC affiliate station in Miami and Fort Lauderdale. He was the first black sportscaster in the region during those early days before cable TV was ubiquitous and a good solid decade before the internet would become a thing. I have also my own personal connection with Cambrell as well. While I watched him on the tube as he read the scores and showed the highlights from our beloved sports teams like the Miami Dolphins and the Miami Hurricanes, he also did something incredibly special that helped propel me on my own career path. We'll get to that a little bit later on on our show. Cambrell, it's an honor to have you here. Thanks for joining me. Hey, it's great to have heard from you. Great to be able to reconnect. It's been a long time. My first question for you, and I probably might have asked you this uh, a long time ago too, but tell me, why are you a journalist? I, um, it's been a, <laughs> wasn't an easy decision for me. I started out as a history major, then I was a sociology major. And then I went to broadcasting at Arizona State University. I was at uh, on a four-year ROTC scholarship. Uh, this is happening during the 70s. The Vietnam War was going on. And I wanted to make sure that if I was going to be going into the military, that I went as an officer. So I applied for a scholarship and I got a four-year ROTC scholarship. Journalism was not one of the things that was on the board as far as what the Army was interested in training me in. Uh, so I held off on that. But uh, I ultimately ended up getting out of the ROTC program in the meantime, and I realized that journalists were doing a lot of things that almost mirrored what sociologists were doing. In other words, there were problems in the communities. Journalists would shine a light on it. Journalists don't often go ahead and solve the problem, but we, call, we, saw, we put a light on the problem, and then it's up to somebody else to go ahead and solve it. And I thought that journalism would be a good way to kind of be a little bit of that. My mother was a sociologist and I'm a mama's boy. So I always wanted to be like mom and kind of sort of like mom. And so that's when I changed my major major to broadcasting at Arizona State. They didn't have a, uh, they, had, they didn't call it a broadcast journalism. They just called it broadcasting. So that's what I changed my major to and um, was focused on trying to get a job as a journalist. And the first job that came along was as a weekend sportscaster. So I thought, well, okay, well, on TV in Phoenix, Arizona, I'll take it. So that's what led me to TV uh, and being embraced into a culture at Cool TV. I know that's really cool. K-O-O-L TV in Phoenix, where I started under the tutelage of a guy named Bill Close, who was a double amputee news director, double amputee legs news director. And anchor did all of that. Amazing man, 
really, really hardcore journalist. And he's the one who really got me to understand, even though I was there as a sportscaster, that I was under the journalism umbrella. And even even things we did as sportscasters needed to be within uh, the thought process of being a journalist. He was hardcore, uh, uh, a, a, a very strict grammarian, really got on me about saying things correctly and uh, making sure that I would uh, pronounce words correctly and get rid of the slurs and um, the slurring that I may have lapsed into at that time. So Bill Close is really the one who really got me focused on, quote, being a journalist um, in the family of even sports at that time, but with an eye on being a mainstream journalist at that time. And you went from Arizona to Michigan to Connecticut before you landed in Florida. I'm curious, what was it like moving around from city to city? I mean, that's kind of what it what the business was like in those days, right? Yeah, it was. But, you know, I, I grew up as an army brat. So by nature, we were used to moving. Uh, you know, as a kid, you know, born in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, then to Germany, back to Fort Bragg, to Fort Benning, to Arkansas, where my father went to Korea, then to Kansas, and then to California, where my dad got ready to go to Vietnam for the second time. So I, one of the things about this business, I always said, you know, once I get into a business for career, I'm going to make sure I have a career that's going to have us have me be stable. I don't want to move around very much. So how did I get into broadcasting is unbelievable. I was like, wait a minute. I thought that I was not going to be moving a lot. Uh, and so I really didn't move that much. I mean, I started out at Arizona State and I was able to start right there in Phoenix at the CBS station as a weekend sportscaster. And then I went to Detroit. I was in Detroit for seven months and transferred in the company to our station in Connecticut. My first daughter was born in 85 there in February. And in October 85, I was in Miami. So I, I really haven't moved that much. I was in Miami for 13 years and I've been here in Houston for 23. It'll be 24 years coming up in, on May and May or the first week in May. So you're right. There's a lot of movement, but I think that I was very uh, intent on making sure in my mindset, my next move is my last move. And I think that helped me to put down roots that I might not otherwise have done if I was looking at every move as a stepping stone to someplace else. So within my community, I said, the only way I'm going to really get to know this community is to really embrace it and be here and be present, if you will, mindset, uh, as well as being physically present. So I try not to move very much, um, you know, in the 47 years I've been in the business, you know, one place 24 years, the other place 13 years. I think that's a pretty good record. Tell me what it was like to to arrive in South Florida in 1985. The, the news reports describe you as the first black man to be a sportscaster there. What was that like in 1985 to show up in South Florida? You know, I had a I had really good mentors there at that station. Uh, Bill Ryan, who was our general manager. In fact, in fact, I just visited two weeks ago. He lives in Jupiter now. Um, and uh, my news director at the time was a guy by the name of Steve Washerman. And I remember we went down. We, I did the interviews with them. Bill Ryan, by the way, had been my general manager in Hartford. So he knew what he was getting if he was going to hire me as a as a sports guy in, in Miami. So we did all the interviews and things, and they offered me the job and so forth. And then later on, they wrote the story that, that you're referring to. Uh, in this case, the Miami Herald wrote, there was an article, it's the headline said, Channel 10 hires black anchor 
on their sports page. And so Steve Washerman called me up and he said, um, hey, I just want you to know the newspaper wrote something uh, that uh, we never talked about. And I just want to let you know that they're reporting that uh, that you're black. <laughs> and I said, oh, they are, are they? He said, we never brought that up, did we? I said, no, we didn't. I understand that Bill Ryan, our general manager, was livid by that, the fact that they wanted to call attention to the fact that I was black. It's like people couldn't see that already. Uh, and he called the publisher of the Miami Herald and really uh, read him a riot act. I think part of it was that the Chuck Dowdle had been in South Florida for a long South South Florida for a long time. He was a sports director at the time, and he was moving uh, to Atlanta, and I was taking his place. And I think that they, uh, my station, the general manager, was really kind of sensitive to the fact that number one, here I was coming in to replace a guy who'd been there for 12, 15 years, really well liked. And now they're calling attention to not only is this guy replacing this guy who's been a mainstay, but he's a black guy, too. And so it was like, wow. So this is where we are. It's 1985. And I thought, my goodness, this is not something I expected in 1985. But then you have to look at the history of Florida. I mean, Florida was a Johnny come lately to desegregation in a lot of different ways. And remember, I was an army brat. So by the time I moved to Kansas. I was in the fourth grade. Now, I'd lived in the South, in the segregated South as a child. I mean, I'm 70 years old now. So in the 50s and 60s, everything was segregated. So I was used to that. Uh, well, you never get used to it, but I had had that experience, I should say. Then to California where, hey, there's no such thing as that in California. And then the Arizona State. And then finally, back back to Connecticut. And so, so when I got down to Florida and that was being talked about, it really was a shock but it was also a reminder to me that there was there were going to be segments of that community who were never going to not see me as a black guy, no matter what I did. And so, so be it. I was raised to a point where my parents always taught me that there are going to be people like that. And my responsibility was to be uh, better than most around me, if possible, and to not worry about that other stuff. It'll, it'll, you know, everything will take care of itself. So it was a shock, but it was a reminder about what our society was at that time. In many ways, unfortunately, many, many, many years later, in some parts of our country, is still that way. You mentioned your 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 family and your family um, is a family of teachers in Arkansas who who worked and was a principal, if I'm not mistaken, at a a segregated school in Arkansas in the 50s. Right. 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 My grandfather was the principal of the colored school. Uh, He taught 9th, 10th, 11th and 12th grades. My grandmother was a teacher there. She taught seventh and eighth grades. And during the period of time when my father was in Korea and we stayed with my grandparents while he was in Korea, my mother also taught there, uh, taught third, third and fourth grades. It was a, uh, the town was Arkansas City, Arkansas, or is Arkansas City, Arkansas, population 650. Mm-hmm. And the student population at the... Uh, J.B. Payne Elementary and High School, my grandfather's name was J.B. Payne, was 100 students from first grade through 12th. And the reason my grandfather taught 9th, 10th, and 11th, and 12th grades was by the time they got to those grades, many of them had dropped out or women, the girls had gotten pregnant. So the numbers were a lot less uh, during that period of time. But I was fortunate to have had you know, I always say you don't have a choice in who your parents are. You know, I was lucky. I got lucky in the parent lottery because I had all those educators around me who handed me a book 
at a very early age. And so I was reading well ahead of what uh, my grade level was early on because they had gave me these books and made me really develop a love for books. So the educators uh, were really important in my life. And in the 50s, educators, uh, religious leaders, and doctors were the ones within the African-American community who were looked up to because they were the ones who could get you out of circumstances by giving you an education, heal you if you got sick, and heal your spirit if something else is going wrong, if you needed to get that healed as well. So my grandfather and my grandmother and my mother played those instrumental roles in helping me uh, navigate my way through what was a very, very, very trying experience as a little boy in southern Arkansas who had a cross burn on our yard. I, you know, it's difficult to um, articulate what that does to a then eight-year-old kid, uh, how it impacted my life for many, many, many years. So it was a challenge. You spoke movingly about that um, in, a, in a Facebook Live video uh, soon after the pandemic started uh, in uh, 2020 outside of a uh, was it a school in Texas that you were that you were talking to a video that went it looked like it went viral in, in Texas? Can you tell us a little bit about the message that you were that you were you were that you were talking about there? Yeah, that that was outside. Um, it was outside of school, um, in, not far from where I live. But uh, when they were building that school, they were digging the foundation and they ran into some bodies there. Further research indicated that. They were part of what was um, legal at the time in Texas, where they would incarcerate black men for very minute offenses, and they'd have to work their way off the prison. Most of the time, they didn't. Uh, Offenses such as not stepping off the sidewalk to let a white guy go by, or if you didn't have identification papers to show that you were employed. Those kinds of things, you get you tossed into the jail. Well, this group of prisoners they found, they, they were dubbed as the Sugarland 95. They found 95 people. There were 94 men and one young lady, I think. And, ra- and so what they did was they reinterred them in that area and they fenced it off and they've made now so people can go and see this site where these men and women were, and it just shows what was going on in our society at that time after slavery was abolished. And in Houston and Galveston, which is 50 miles to the south of Houston, is where Juneteenth began. It was June 19th in the 1860s when slaves there were read the Emancipation Proclamation by General Gordon Granger down in Galveston. And it wasn't until they heard that order read that they were actually free. So they got their stuff and they walked on from Galveston up to Houston and started establishing themselves. So now that slavery wasn't around anymore, people here, this is a lot of sugar plantations where I am now. I'm living in Sugarland, Texas, and this site is not far from here. And so these owners of these sugar uh, plants, uh, sugar fields, needed workers. So they contracted with the state of Texas to have these workers workers, I put that in air quotes, to provide labor for their fields. And somehow or another, these people were never able to work their way, very seldom were they, were they able to work their way off the labor camp. Um, and so it was just a really horrific 
part of our history. And I, I, the thing I did over there, I was just struck by what these men and women have gone through uh, on the website that was uh, put together by an organization that's focused on Sugarland 95. They actually gave some of the descriptions of the men and women who were there based upon what archaeologists were able to put together, how big they were, how young they might have been, the death was as a result of hard labor, those kinds of things. And it just made me angry to think about the way that this country was at that time. And it, it, it's fascinating now as we're dealing with history that um, there's some in our country who are not really interested in hearing the history of what happened uh, when white people treated black people in a way that was horrific. Somehow or another now, it's not we can't talk about it because it's critical race theory and it shouldn't be talked about. So I said, well, you know, I... I'm sorry. Initially, there was a law that allowed white people to do bad things to bad people. And now they put laws in a place that don't let you talk about what white people did to black people. So as a journalist, I look at that and I say, well, that's just not right. (laughs) And so that day, I think I was just I just I had to talk. And um, you're right. It was during the pandemic. And it was just it was also after the Floyd, uh, the Floyd protest had swept the nation, too. right? Right. 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 And people are trying to get in touch with. Okay, what's right? What's wrong? Am I uh, uh, open enough to what's going on? And, you know, there's a group of our people in our country who hated that, hated the idea that we would actually think that um, that that there's a systematic racism in our judicial system or anything that's going to treat these black people less than. How dare we think that? Well, uh, facts are facts. And so the truth is truth. So I often mention that now uh, on my Newsmakers program as well, talking about some of those facts that are out there that people might not want to hear. But, hey, history is truth. And sometimes it's difficult to hear, but we have to embrace it, understand it and uh, know that that's where we've come from. I'm going to come back to this topic in a minute. I want to bring you back to Florida with me uh, first. and, And let's. I'm really tempted to to, to nerd out uh, about the dolphins with you, and I'm going to do that in a second. But first, um, uh, Hurricane Andrew happens in 1993. I want to kind of move before I go to sports. 92. Let's just talk Hurricane Andrew, 92. Yeah. Um, marks a turning point for you in your career. What what happened there? Oh my, yeah. I was uh, I, I changed from WPLG, the ABC station. I'd moved over to uh, uh, the a CBS station there in Miami. And I was still the sports director there. Uh, and when Hurricane Andrew hit, August 24th, 1992, our main anchor, John Hambrick, was on his ranch in Texas. See, back in those days, anchors made a whole lot of money. Uh, they do well now, I think, too. But back in those days, it wasn't unusual to have an anchor, in, even in Cleveland, making a million dollars a year. But somehow, John had a ranch in Texas. He was back on his ranch. Another guy, uh, one of our other anchors, his name was Ken Matz. Ken was in Virginia helping his daughter get into the school. So here's Hurricane Andrew barreling down towards South Florida. And they're looking at, okay, we got to have people on the air who are going to. And they said, okay, Cambrell, sports director, we're going to need you to go on the set and, and, and anchor hurricane coverage. I said, absolutely. Ironically, I have been praying for an opportunity to do something other than sports because the sports was being squeezed. They were given less and less time every night on the nightly news. 
And I was working my butt off every day trying to gather all the information I could. And I said, yeah, I, I can't continue like this. So what am I going to be able to do? So I've been praying for an opportunity. I didn't want a Category 5 hurricane to give me that opportunity, but it did come. And I sat on the set doing Hurricane Andrew coverage until our tower got uh, blown down. And uh, once that happened, we were off the air and we were off the air for a couple of months, in fact, except for a low power TV, which we had. But my management saw the job that I did anchoring that coverage. And they said, you know, that was you did a good job. Would you consider making a transition to news? And I said, yesterday I would. Absolutely. So that's when I started to leave the sports part of my career. And I started to I was still doing sports for a while there. And then I transitioned to do uh, four o'clock anchoring the four o'clock one hour and then going out and reporting for the 11 o'clock show. And then about a year and a half later, they moved me up to the uh, uh, four or five and I'm mean, so five, six and 11 o'clock newscast anchoring as a primary newscaster there from 94 until 99. So that Andrew was while it tore up my house a bit. I was out of my house for months, uh, scared my my children, made a very challenging time for all of us in South Florida during that time. But it was uh, a godsend for me in terms of my career because it gave me a chance to start another part of what has been a rewarding uh, career for me. But now I transition from sports into news, which is what I'd wanted to do for a long time anyway. Hmm. It changed so much in South Florida uh, for everyone. Um, I'm wondering something that happened uh, during your time. I don't think it was at your TV network, but but it changed the way I think local news around the country um, was made, which is when, um, and forgive me, you're going to get to see my cat here, um, popping in for a, for, for part of this. That's all right. Bring uh, on. Gonna, it's me, Albert Einstein here. Um, so, uh, WSVN, uh, yeah. which lost its affiliation, um, I believe it was NBC and then it lost it and then it became Fox, but they then kind of began what, you know, arguably transforms local news all around the country with sort of the, if it bleeds, it leads concept. Sure. sure. And really takes things to a totally new place. Can you talk about what that must have been like to watch your competitors going there? And what does that do to the local TV world? Yeah, we were very curious when that happened. Joel Cheatwood was the news director at that time at that station. Uh, Sunbeam, I think, was their corporate name. And they had a station there in, in uh, Miami and a station in Boston, or they ended up having one in Boston at some point. But you're right. There was a, uh, it was a big shift uh, in networks um, in South Florida, at my station, WPLG, was the only one that remained the same. All the other stations changed. WPLG was the ABC affiliate. Um, uh, Ch- Channel 7, WSVN, was the NBC station. And uh, WTBJ was a CBS station. Uh, WCIX, Channel 6, was independent. So when CBS came in, they bought WCIX and that became the CBS station. WTVJ became the NBC station that left WSVN out in the cold. So they became an independent and started coming up with unique and creative ways to fill their programming. And a lot of it was to go heavy on news. Some would argue that what they did as news was not necessarily news as we used to know it, but anything that would get your eyeballs attention. You're right. The bleeds at least kind of thing. Rick Sanchez, who was the anchor there at that time, I remember 
they used to have a segment called Crime Check. Uh, and I, before he became the main guy there, they used to have him go and set up in a crime-ridden area. And unfortunately, 90% of the time that meant going to the black community in the projects or something like that and just waiting for some sort of crime to happen. And when they came on the air with their 10 o'clock news, there'd be Rick standing there talking about a crime that happened. Well, they got a lot of pushback from, you might expect, from Urban League and NAACP and stuff like that saying, well, that's, isn't that kind of discriminatory when you're going right into the black community and wait for crime to happen? But that's the kind of stuff they were doing, getting the eyeballs. It's kind of like when you are driving and you see somebody in the fender bender on the side of the road. We've seen fender benders forever. There's no need to slow down and watch. There's no need. But our, our, but our, 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 our nature is to slow down and take a look. And then backup happens. So they were using the same sort of spirit, if you will, of television to try to get our attention. They changed the graphics. They made these big, bold graphics. They put their news anchors in front of the actual studio so you could see working media, media in the background. So it was busy in the background and the shots they had were really tight on the face of the anchors and it was fast paced and it was like, bam, bam, bam. So they put a lot more. Their story count was just really, really high compared to the other stations. So it was a precursor to a lot of what's happening now. Now we've got our phones that uh, that are doing a lot of that. Now we're all changing in journalism now, trying to figure out the best way to to, to get people to watch the product we're doing because it's changed so much. So the evolution of it all really did kind of start with what was happening at SVN. And there were copycats all across the country as a result of some of the success that they found. Now, they didn't become number one during the 11 o'clock hour, but they were number one in their 10 o'clock hour. And they were like, not there weren't too many stations doing, on the East Coast, the main news time was at 11 o'clock. So very rarely did you see 10 o'clock news, but they were the ones who started doing that 10 o'clock newscast. And as a result of their popularity and success and the money that they were making because they were selling spots within that one hour um, uh, because it was attractive to advertisers who knew a lot of eyeballs are going to be watching. So they started getting copycats across the country. And as a result of that, that style of, quote, journalism started to take hold all across the United States. And this was before, I mean, CNN existed, but CNN was not the CNN of oh, even the 2000 era. No, um, right. no, no, they weren't. Um, they were starting to, you know, because Ted Turner was really a, a future thinking kind of guy. And they were obviously not uh, being held back by things that, oh, we've already, we've always done this. Let's continue to do this. He didn't believe in that. So they were always trying new things. As we know, when the Gulf War came around, they were the ones right there. We, we Bernard Shaw reporting from Baghdad and, you know, those kind of things you hear, though. That was really um, spectacular when that was going on there. So, yeah, they they uh, SBN was on the cusp of that, and they still are doing the same kind of uh, broadcast now. They started Ocean Drive way back when, uh, which was like a unique. This talking about uh, um, uh, the the stuff that was going on in South Beach and entertainment and all that kind of stuff. Not hard news, but the gossipy kind of stuff. So, you know, Entertainment Tonight didn't have anything on Ocean Drive with Belkis Naray, who's still at WSVN in South Florida, by the way. Everything starts in South Florida, uh, is, <laughs> is at least how I thought of it when I came out of South Florida. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, kind of stepping back, uh, you mentioned phones, and I'm just curious, you've, you've had a career 
that spans the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st. And so much has changed on the technological front. Um, you, you get into the business before cable TV is really in our homes. Uh, the closest thing to a phone that you could talk to was, you know, you had to go hit up a payphone or whatnot. Yeah. But tell me, how have audience how have audience expectations changed because of the ways of technology that are now, you know, everywhere? Yeah, the audience is much more demanding now than ever before. Um, when I started in 1975, you're right. Um, you didn't have a cell phone. Um, we were barely getting into tape at that time. We were shooting film when I first got into the business. You go ahead and you develop your film. It took about 12 minutes or whatever to develop the film. And, and then you, you, you edit it or whatever. You cut it. Uh, in our case, we were just starting on videotape. So we would put the film in the soup, get it out, and transfer it immediately to videotape so we wouldn't, um, so we could keep it instead. Because once you make a cut on film, you've cut, you can't uncut it. Um, so, but in those days, you know, viewers, the news came on at certain times. It wasn't going to come on before then, but your news, six o'clock news, 10 o'clock news. Uh, some stations had noon news. Nobody had morning newscasts. Uh, except for maybe the networks until, you know, local stations started to get the bug as well. But back then, that's what was it. They Viewers took what the broadcasters gave. Now it's the other way around. The broadcasters, the, the viewers are demanding more. Uh, and the reason is because of money. Um, you know, we've tried to, at our station and other stations, trying to figure out ways to monetize what's going on now with social media. Yeah, every, every station's got a Facebook page. Every station has their own uh, Twitter account. Every station has those kinds of things. But the reality is that you, we don't get any money from how many viewers are watching our Facebook page. That's something that's monetized by Facebook. So the stations are looking for ways to monetize their own product. And so what we found is that people are getting their news from all kinds of different sources now. Once upon a time, they got the news from the newspaper, a magazine, whether the newspaper be a daily or weekly or magazine, TV or radio, that's it. And you always knew you're going to get the news on the radio on the hour, maybe the quarter hour. You know, every quarter hour you might get news on radio or whatever. And that was it. And so now, though, because we have phones, we have all these different things. People want to know what's going on. I'll go on my phone right now, go to Twitter, go to Google, you know, whatever search engine I got. And I'm expecting to have the latest news right there, right now. So now, as a journalist at a local television station, how do I get somebody to want to watch my newscast when I know the story of the day is already out there and has been out there for hours to anybody who's got a phone has been curious about what's going on? So that puts a lot of pressure and a lot of expectation on those of us in local media to figure out the best way to package what we do. I always say that your local media person is always going to be the best person to get your information from. Networks, cable networks, you can pretty much know if you go to Fox, you're going to get a far right view. You go to MSNBC, you're going to get a left leaning view. You go to CNN, you may not get either one, but you're not going to get a right view. You're going to get more center or left leaning in terms of political meaning. Those are the cable networks. Well, local TV can't afford to do that. We have to be do the best quote journalism we possibly can. Bill Close my first boss back in Phoenix when he hired me in 1975 and told me I looked like I was 14 and said the good news was that he was in a market where every, there were a lot of old people in Phoenix, Sun City. He said, I probably look like their grandson so I could last. 
But he always said the last two words I ever want to hear coming out of your mouth. I think. Because viewers don't care what you think. They want to know what the deal is. You know, and that's why it cracks me up when Fox News came up with this slogan. We report, you decide. Really? Well, it's how they report. The kind of we want to coach you to kind of decide the way we want you to understand. So that's a farce. But Bill Close is right. He said, I think it's something you don't want any journalist to have in their vernacular. And so that's how I've you know gathered myself throughout the years. But that's also what keeps us focused on making sure when we're giving our news, that it's news that people know is not biased one way or the other. We have to work hard to make sure that our biases don't come out. Lerone Bennett, who was a editor of Jet Magazine at one point in time, he made a comment. And I told him after he spoke, I said, I'm stealing that. And he said, the only objective journalist is a dead journalist. And I said, whoa, whoa. He said, because everybody brings their own life experience into everything they do. It's not possible to divorce yourself from a story you may do, you may be doing based upon your life experience. If I'm doing a story that's about the Ku Klux Klan, for example, I can't divorce myself from the fact that these guys burned a cross on my yard in Arkansas as a little kid, and that really irritated me. I can't unsee that. But when I write that news story that's dealing with the Klan's marching or whatever, and I've had to do those stories, I have to do the story that is right down the middle with what the objective facts are all about. So when we do that, if we do that regularly enough and as good as we possibly can, then viewers, and I say viewers or listeners or people on their cell phones are going to know that we can be the trusted source that they go to. And hopefully we're going to be the ones that they turn to when they need to get the information. Uh, just to sort of step back a little bit, what's one thing you never imagined would happen in your career that has happened? Wow. Wow. So can I sleep on that and get back to you tomorrow? No, um, I, I think that, um, I think, you know what? Being able to have been in this business for 47 years now and being in a position where uh, my station and my company likes me, they love my work, they appreciate me, they're not interested in me retiring in two years when I plan to retire, I never thought necessarily that I would get to that point, that that has happened, that I've reached a point in my career where um, I'm stable, that I'm not concerned about the next contract not being renewed. Now, remember, I, well, not remember, we haven't talked about this, but I've had my contract not renewed three times in three different circumstances where I was going to be out of a job which I thought was crazy because I thought, hey, I do a good job. What's going on with this? That just showed you how subjective our business is. So the fact that I have, quote, survived and managed to do what I've been able to do across three genres with sports, news, and maybe four sports, news, management, and meteorology, um, there's no way in 1975 when I first started this business that anyone would have told me that I'd be doing this 47 years later and having done all of those things. There's just no way. And I, I just, I'm blessed to have been able to do it the right place at the right time. The door is opening at the right place at the right time to allow me to start doing these kinds of things. So, uh, Good segue. The name of this podcast and the name of my uh, my new sub stack is Love Journalism. And um, 
I'm curious on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the most in love and one being, you know, ready for a divorce. Where would you sort of put yourself in sort of your views on the state of American journalism right now and, and, and why? Oh, man, I think it's a five uh, at best. And I say that because younger generations of people coming into the business I don't want to toss any shade on young people, but they're coming in with the me, 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 me kind of mentality. Social media is all about what am I going to put on my Instagram or my Facebook page to attract eyeballs. And many times people who happen to be journalists put things on their Facebook pages and social media pages that have nothing to do with journalism and everything to do with, hey, look at me, look at me. And what happens, I think, in the long range is that journalists end up losing respect because of that. Uh, I am responsible for our, our intern program at my television station, too. I've been doing that for the last 10 years. And so it gives me great joy to tell my, my babies, I call them, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I let them know that as journalists, it's important for them to remain objective um, and not allow themselves to get into the right or left political uh, uh, skirmishes. But unfortunately, throughout our, across the, the breadth of our world of journalism, we're seeing more and more and more people who uh, are not adhering to that. Uh, those of us who are in the business who are older, um, I think it's up to us to really double down on trying to reinforce to those who are coming into the business that it's not appropriate. But even some people who've been around, I've you know, there have been people I've worked with recently who politically uh, could be categorized either far right or far left and allow their viewpoints to come into the stories that they were doing by editing out certain information because it maybe didn't fit into the area that they thought it should fit into. Maybe that it should be a little bit more progressive or it should be a little bit more conservative. We wanted to. So that's happening. And the more that happens, the less respect this career of journalism gets. There was a time, remember, when everybody tuned in at six o'clock or 530, whatever time it was across the country to see Walter Cronkite or Chet Huntley, and David Brinkley. Um, and there are others. But Walter, if Walter said it, mm. it's true. Remember, he's the one who helped bring the Vietnam War to a close. When he went to Vietnam and came back and reported on what he thought, and for the first time ever, he gave his opinion on something as an editorial about what his images, what, what he had seen there in Vietnam. And then that began a groundswell of support, much to the chagrin of President Johnson, about the fact that it was, that was whoa, what are you doing? So journalism at once upon a time was really, really appreciated because they knew everybody was hardworking and they were working on getting the truth no matter what. And now we're kind of just kind of morphing into, yeah, some journalism truth, but a lot of you look at me, how I dance and we're doing this dance thing. And I said, you know what? They, no, not only will you not hear me say, I think you won't see me dance on my social media pages either. So that's why I say it's a five um, when it used to be a lot higher, but it's five and it's, mm, it's, it's maybe going down a little bit. I'm hopeful though. I'm an eternal optimist. So I'm, hopeful that it's going to be better tomorrow and next year and the year after. But 
uh, I'm afraid I won't be around to really affect the change. I'll be watching it from that point. Hopefully. I mean, you kind of answered my question a moment ago, but I mean, what else do you think journalists should be considering if they're getting into the business today, like in terms of their career paths? I mean, are they going to follow a path like yours if they're coming into the careers just now? Well, I would hope they have a, a great curiosity about life and people. I mean, that to me, that's the basic foundation of everything we do in journalism, a basic curiosity about life and people and have a willingness and desire to tell the story. Uh, I know I, I'm so blessed. I work with a lot of good people at KPRC here in Houston who are journalists who just want to tell the story. And it's really I just I think it's wonderful and how you craft that story in such a way that it makes a difference. People think, well, he just kind of went there and is winging it, doing a stand-up. No, no, everything is written. Uh, everything is written. Now, breaking news is not that way. And you go and you're doing a story, but you're still writing it in your head about how you want to have it constructed. Um, and so I'm hopeful that um, we won't lose sight of that, that we will always have people who want to get into the business because they are curious about life, they're curious about people, and they want to tell stories. And if we have those elements then we'll be in good shape. But we need to have more people like that who are ready to do that and have a good grasp of language. Whatever language you speak, whether it's Spanish, whether it's French, whether it's English, this is the Bill Close rubbing off on me, the grammarian who told me one time, I never will forget. I remember as I was a young sportscaster and I said, it was a pretty good game last night. And he called me in his office. He said, so, Cambrell, how pretty was that game last night? I said, what do you mean? He said, was it pretty like a picture? Was it pretty like a pretty girl? What do you... I said... Well, you know what I mean. He said, no, 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 no. Say what you mean. Mean what you say. Use the words that are appropriate and right. I said, oh, man, this guy's going to be tough. And he was tough on me. He made me, uh, after every sportscast I did, and I worked on weekends initially, he said, every Monday morning when I come in, I want to see a note under my door telling me how many times you use the word pretty. <laughs> oh, God, you got to be kidding me. And so I did that for months and months and months. And when I said, Bill, do you want me to keep doing that? He says, oh, I, I, I never even look at it. I said, what are you doing? He said, I want you to go look at your work to make sure that you can see what you're doing. Because when you're performing it, you don't often know how you look. When you look at it afterward, it helps you understand what best practices are. That was the reason I did that. So it, it just grammarian, being able to understand the language you're going to communicate in so that whatever audience you're trying to attract or uh, reach out to that they have no problem understanding what you're saying or what you're writing. Is it hard for you? I'm just this. It's hard for me sometimes to watch myself after I've done a TV hit or a radio hit. Is it hard for you to watch yourself on TV after? Awful, awful, awful. I never, I never look at myself. Never. What is that? Uh, why? Why is when that? I was looking for jobs, I, I don't know. I, because I, I know in my case, I'm a perfectionist in that regard. I'll, I'll you know, we'll never reach perfection level. But I'll always see something. I'll look and I'll see, well, my head wasn't right or my eye was, my left eye was smaller than my right. Something I'm not going to, or I'm, I'm a very, very um, uh, tough on myself as it relates to diction and pace. Um, you know, I've evolved now. I'm, I, I host my own public affairs program, but I'm also a meteorologist. So the meteorology part is not scripted. So I'm conversational. And so I get excited about something I'm talking about and I'll start speeding up and I'll go way too fast. And so when I look at this, when I go back and look at it, it's, oh, what was the fire? Slow down, young man. Have a conversation. 
So I know that if I go back and look at it, I'm going to be disappointed in what I see. So I tend not to go back and look at it because I just, yeah, it's difficult to do. When I was being asked to send uh, tapes of myself to an agent or to a news director who was looking for something, I said, yeah, I'll, put, I'll get something to you next week. Well, it never took a week because I never saw a show that I liked well enough to send to somebody. Um, and that's just the way it's been for my whole career. Um, I don't see much that I like. And even, you know, putting in stuff for an Emmy, you know, I say, well, I don't, I don't enter contest, number one. And number two, I don't like what I do enough to, to do it. Well, you know, my photographers at some point in time say, well, I'm putting it in. And you go in with me or not. I said, okay, fine. And end up winning an Emmy. So it was a good thing for that. So that, that was validated at that point. That was it. Okay, I'm done. Don't need any more. Let me go back into my hole and be self-critical, which my dad always say, frequent self-critical mm -hmm. analysis. He said that all my life. And so that's what I do as an adult now. I have been told I am my biggest critic. And I think that there is absolutely something uh, to that piece of advice. Right. Well, you know, it makes us work harder, doesn't it? I mean, you want to be better the next time around. You want to write something differently. And I look at um, various forms of writing uh, to watch it writing styles uh, and listen to their styles. Uh, Robert, Bob, Bob was Bob's last name. Oh, gosh. He was 60 minutes and he got killed in a car accident in New York. Um, Bob, he, at one point in time, he was captured during the Iraq Bob war Simon. for a little bit. Bob Simon. Bob Simon. Amazing writer. Amazing writer. Just the way he put words together. Um, he was one of the guys that I looked at, looked up to. I would never be able to emulate his style, but because you have to have a certain kind of vocabulary to do that. I mean, mine passes, but his was mm -hmm. exquisite. So, but though you have to look at people who you can look up to and try to be like if you want to be the best, you got to look at the best and try to do that. So, I skipped over the move from news to meteorology. Take me through how you made the the jump from. Uh... Well, and when I was in high school, I actually started to to look at meteorology. I was uh, I was at a summer science seminar at the Naval Postgraduate School of Monterey, California, at the end of my sophomore year. And they had two weeks. We stayed on the Naval Postgraduate Campus. And for every day, we studied a different science. One of those days happened to be meteorology. And I thought it was fascinating that if I plotted different places on a map and got the temperature, the barometric pressure, the wind direction, where it was coming from, where it was going to, and plotted those along a map in many different places, I could tell where high pressure was developing and low pressure was developing, the direction. I said, well, that's fascinating. I think I might want to be a meteorologist. That was in high school. Then when I started looking at colleges and looking at majors, I found out that in order to be a meteorologist, most colleges had, you had to have prerequisites of calculus and, and physics. Yeah, no, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> not good at math, not that kind of way. So I put that on the back burner, but I was always hanging out in the meteorology departments of all my television stations. And when I moved to Houston as an anchor here, noon, four and five o'clock anchor. So, you know, I'm in a tropical environment like I was in Miami. It makes sense to me that if I'm going to be on the air hours and hours doing coverage of tropical events, it would help me if I was a lot more knowledgeable about meteorology. So I started taking meteorology classes through Mississippi State University. 
little did I know that about a year or so into that, that my contract wasn't going to get renewed. One of the times that that happened in my career. And I may, I was heading toward unemployment at some point. It didn't happen. A new general manager came in and said, whoa, we got to have you stay here. And I became a manager here. But I continued to study meteorology without any kind of game. I was not planning on being on the air. I was just studying meteorology. Uh, but ultimately, a number of years later, I, I determined that I really wanted to be back on the air. And my station had a weekend evening, uh, weekend morning meteorology spot. And they said, look, we know you're studying meteorology. Uh, and so if you want this job, you can have it. We're not even going to post this job. And so that's when I got into meteorology. It's about 10 years ago now. And since that time, we've gone through major storms and I've gotten better at what I do and understanding more about um, the environment and I step outside. And a lot of times now I look up, see what kind of sky we have. It's clear blue like it is today. There's high pressure starting to build in. If there are clouds around, there's low pressure around, and maybe there's lift going on. And so there's a lot of things that go into it, but I've always been a geek about it. And now to be able to do it professionally is a, is a good thing. It, it would not be the thing that I would be doing if I had my druthers in terms of my career, finishing up my career. This is not what I would be doing, but this is what I am doing, and I thoroughly enjoy it. And I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth and I told my general manager today, I was having a conversation with him. I said, you know, the 20, almost 24 years I've been here, my paycheck has never bounced. I think this is a good thing. So I've continued to do that. Uh, so this podcast, this whole uh, thing for me, Love Journalism, uh, bore out for me from a period of, I would say, the lowest point of my career, um, losing a job uh, back in October um, after running really hard for a long time. Um, 22 years of, of daily deadline journalism, writing, you know, three, four, five stories a day and then leading a team. Um, and I guess the point, I, uh, something that I'll say it and, and how I got to this and, and the question I want to ask you is, as I was going through this period of figuring out after losing a job, you know, what do I really want to do when I grow up? Um, which I think is a question maybe I might've asked you um, or helped help many years ago, but I'm curious, um, I was going around and asking everybody a, a version of this question to help me get through my own adversity by asking other people to share with me a moment of adversity um, for some perspective. And um, I can't tell you how great hearing other people share their stories of adversity and how they got through them uh, helped me ultimately end up in a place where I you know, have created something new here with love journalism. And I'm just curious if you would share a, an adversity story oh, with us. Oh, gosh. Well, every time my contract wasn't renewed was an adversity story. Uh, I remember early on when I was about 10 years in, I was working with a guy who was in my sports department. I was sports director there at the time. And he says, you never got fired? Oh, you stay. You, you, you haven't lived if you haven't got fired. Everybody gets fired once in this business. I said, well, I, I, I intend not to. Uh, about two years later, my contract wasn't renewed. Um, and I can remember that it was a shock because I had been doing what I thought was a good job. It was total subjective. It wasn't, you know, performance related at all. It was subjective. And I remember the feeling that I had of not worthlessness, but less worth uh, about what I had been training to do for a while. And I, I, then it would just put me on my heels a little bit to figure out what I was going to do going forward. Um, it, it happened again um, at the other station in Miami 
later on, uh, about seven, eight years later. But each one of those opportunities, each one of those times was a cold slap in the face uh, for your strive for perfection or your strive for professionalism. And I remember that I'm a spiritual person, so I do, I believe in God and I pray and um, I, I just had to be still and pray for for myself to to make a good decision on what was going to be next. So I was a father and my wife is a stay-at-home mom. So there's a lot of responsibility for me, my wife, and my two children. So when that happened, it really uh, threw me for a loop. I, and I think what helped me get out of it was that once I sent my tape out, there were a number of people who were willing and ready to hire me that really made it very clear to me that my business is so subjective and that what one person thinks doesn't have anything to do with your worth and your ability to do the job. Um, it's easier said than done to work out of it. That's for sure. Not knowing what's going to be happening next. Um, am I, what's the next job going to be? Am I going to be able to have this job? Now I've got to make a course correction on what I can do. What am I going to do? How am I going to do it? When does the money run out? I mean, those are real stresses, stressors, real pressure on what's next. Um, in my case, I mean, this is it. I mean, this is what I do. Now, here in Houston, there are people who approach me now who indicated to me they have things they want me to do. Uh, once I retire, they were already offered opportunities at some point. I'm not even entertaining any of that stuff at this point. But the fact that I'm here now is a validation, if you will, of the original premise, which was, I think I'm pretty good at what I do. And the subjectivity part is never going away in my business. And as long as I understand that that's what it's all about, that I, I can, I'm not going to let that bother me. Um, but with the kids involved, it became really difficult. My, when we moved here in 99, mm -hmm. my oldest daughter was just getting ready to go into her freshman year. And my youngest daughter was going to be in seventh grade. And they'd grown up in Miami. That's all they knew. And I had to come home and tell him we're going to be moving because daddy lost his job, you know, and it was like, whoa, really tough to do. And I never will forget my general manager at the time who was, um, I'm not going to name him, but the, to this day is the biggest asshole I've ever come in contact with in the business. That's um, tough for me to say, but it's true. I remember him saying, yeah, this isn't personal. It's just business. I say, no, no, it's personal to me. It's personal to my family. So just because you do this as a living, cutting people and all that kind of stuff, you know, don't make it any, don't make it uh, something lighter than what it is because it's, it's personal and it's difficult and it's challenging. And I'm thankful that I had parents who were able to instill in me uh, self-confidence to let me know that my basic foundation, and I think you probably realize this too, Darren, after a while, the basic foundation of what we do the educational foundation we have will always allow us to rise to some level to have another opportunity to do something else. It's just, you know, we, we, we've studied, we've worked, we've gotten to a point where we're proficient at what we do and somebody's going to want it. We just have to package it in a way that it's going to be acceptable. Or you go out on your own like you are uh, and you figure out ways to make that work based upon the talent that you have. And there are more and more opportunities these days. That's the one benefit that what's going on now with journalism, that there are many, many more opportunities. I'm glad to see podcasts like yours and others 
that basically just have people come together and they talk about facts, facts that are out there, what's going on. And we talk about some of the prejudices and how to overcome those things as it relates to news coverage. And how do we get around that? How do we get out of this hyper-partisanship that we're in right now? Uh, that's going to kill us uh, in a lot of different ways. If we don't figure out a way to, to have people understand that just because you have a different opinion about something doesn't mean you're a jerk. Hmm. So... I, te- I teased at the uh, at the start here uh, that we have a personal connection, and I, I should I should tell the story very quickly for uh, for people listening here because Campbell and I are talking, and um, this is actually the first time we've seen each other uh, since 1988, I believe, is when it was. And um, you know, my parents back then were just a few years divorced, and they were in the midst of both getting remarried. Um, and I had a new stepdad at the time who wanted to impress me. I think I was 13 years old. Uh, he knew I was hooked on journalism. Uh, his name, Rick Diamond, he's, he, he passed away a couple years ago. Um, but he worked and he was selling trinkets like T-shirts and keychains and beer koozies uh, with company logos and brand names on them. And a client was indeed WPLJ, excuse me, WPLG mm-hmm. in uh, South Florida. And Rick took me with him on a sales call. And Cambrell, I don't know if you were assigned to give us a tour or if Rick knew you, but um you, you took us around and you, you, uh, you answered every question my little 12, 13-year-old brain might have had. I, I remember being a – I'm sure my stepdad probably said it when we got in the car that I was a pig in shit uh, to get to everything. Uh, he was like that. He, he, he didn't mince words. Um, and we sat for pictures on the set of the Jimmy Johnson show. Um, and I got to say, and I, I wrote this to you in an email how we, we reconnected the other day. Um, over the last 35 or so years since that uh, visit, I do think of that experience all the time. Whenever someone asks me who's coming up in their career at any age, they want to know, you know, what it is I do and what it is that I love. I always think back to you taking that time to talk to me and answer my questions. Um, and I'm just curious, you probably do that a million times over. Am I right? I'm probably one of a million kids who you've, who you've given that for. <laughs> I've done it a lot. Yes, I have. <laughs> it's all about passion. If you like what you do, and you care about people, then it's fine to talk about it and let people know what's going on. That's why I'm running the intern program now at our station. I meet with them tomorrow for two hours. We'll talk about some of the things that they're doing and how I can help them become good journalists, hopefully. But if you can attract the attention of somebody who is excited about it, like you, you never know what's going to happen. But uh, I'm my mother's son, too, who was my mother was one of these people who just really, as I said, I'm a mama's boy. So it's like, I'm going to do what she would have done. My dad was the same way, too, just really gregarious. And I'm not really gregarious in nature. I'm really shy in a lot of different ways. But because of our business, it gives me a chance to talk about what we do. And when you see a young person who can maybe do something in this business and maybe do it well, that, that's a good thing. You remind me of a woman. Her name is Itika Milanis. Very unusual name, Itika I.T. ICA Milanis. And she actually worked here at the station in Houston for a few years, a number of years ago. And when she came on our visit to, to come on our visit, we're talking. She said, Hi, my name is Itika Milanis. Oh, and then we're saying hello. And she said, I'm from South Florida. I said, Oh, good to see you. She said, You don't remember this. I said, No. She says, You came to my eighth grade class one time and you were speaking about journalism. And I said, That'd be so cool. You came in with a coffee cup and whatever. I said, I have no memory of that. But it's really neat that, that that kind of influence can happen as a result of something that's positive. 
as opposed to something that's not. You know, you put the word out there. If you really love what you do, people can see that you love what you do. People can see on TV whether you're being genuine or not, or you're an anchor on TV pretending to be an anchor. And that's come on, be who you are. And if you're going to be acceptable, that's great. If you're not, hey, find something else to do. But you have to be yourself. So I'm glad that I was able to hang out uh, with you many, many years ago. Um, I'm reminded of uh, I have a picture here at the house of me and Michael Irvin and my uh, my oldest daughter, Cammie, who just turned 38 a couple of couple of last week. But at the University of Miami football practice one day, I was out there and Cammie was with me. And Mike, you know, had him come over and uh, he was holding Cammie and we took a picture with him holding Cammie. And so I show, showed her that not long ago. And she said, wow, you know, because he's had a little, little, little dust up in uh, Phoenix, I guess, during the Super Bowl week. But uh, he's had an amazing career and an interesting life for him. But uh, so that you just do what you do. Be happy about it. And hopefully some of the happiness you have will rub off on others. And hopefully, when you say love journalism, we want people to be in this field who love what they do for the right reasons. That's the key, doing it for the right reasons, not to get FaceTime and get a number of likes, but to be able to do what they do, that they're making a difference in the lives of people that they come in contact with each and every day. That's where the bottom line is. On behalf of my 13-year-old self, I thank you again for, for, for that tour and the inspiration way the heck back when, because it did propel me to where I sit here today, too. So It was, it was my pleasure, and it was my chance to be, that was my Walter Mitty-like experience for 18 years, being a sportscaster in an environment where I was never good enough to be that kind of quality athlete, to be able to hang out and rub elbows with some of the greats in the business uh, through the years. Um, it, it's just been amazing to be able to do. So I appreciate having been able to have that opportunity to spend whatever time that was and not knowing what kind of impact it would have. I'm glad it was positive. Mm.